the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blind producing this afternoon. Today we're going to talk with Charles Chrismeyer. He's the author of Hearts of the Father, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. We'll also talk with Travis Weber. He's the Family Research Council's Director of the Center for Religious Liberty. We're going to talk about Air Force, uh, the Air Force Review Board's uh, agency ruling in favor of Colonel Bohannon and his constitutional right to exercise his sincerely held religious beliefs. We'll tell you about the conflict and its resolution and what this means generally for the Department of of defense. And we'll talk with uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman. He's coming to the Portland area for a concert on Thursday, April the 26th at East Hill Church. And this is an unusual concert in that it is Stephen Curtis Chapman solo. There's no band. There's just him, his guitar, and he's going to uh, share a night of uh, hits, history, and influences. He's going to talk uh, through much of his music and just give us a, a, a glimpse into uh, the life that we have come to know and love. Uh, through his music. So that's uh, coming up later in the five o'clock hour as well. And by the way, I should mention that uh, tickets are going very fast. In fact, we fully expect to completely sell out on that concert. So if you're planning on going, I would encourage you to go to kpdq.com immediately to purchase your tickets to make sure that you are among them who uh, enjoy that evening. Again, that's Thursday, April the 26th at East Hill Church. Go to kpdq.com for more information. Well, there was a developing story earlier today of an active shooter, a female, at YouTube headquarters in San Bruno, California. It began at about 1246 this morning. It was a fluid situation. It is now less fluid, but it appears to be a domestic violence incident. There were five victims, one the shooter who apparently took her own life. Uh, One of those uh, injured by the uh, shooter is in critical condition, another in serious conditions, others' condition is unknown. The shooter, as I mentioned, died of self-inflicted wound. Uh, her target was apparently her boyfriend. And uh, again, the, the story is developing. What we heard uh, earlier this afternoon, the police confirmed that a woman was in fact believed to be the shooter. She opened fire at the YouTube headquarters in San Bruno, California, wounding at least four people, but apparently killing herself. There was some sort of celebration going on. It's not clear if she was an associate at YouTube or if she just managed to get in to target the individual that they now suspect was her target. Three people were transported to San Francisco General Hospital, according to a spokesman, including a 36-year-old man in critical condition, a 32-year-old woman in serious condition, and a 27-year-old woman in fair condition. KGO-TV reported the shooter was believed to be a Caucasian woman wearing a headscarf. Some described it as a hijab, unclear whether that was the case, and a dark top, but police didn't immediately confirm that. Witnesses told KTVU that the suspect shot her boyfriend before killing her 
herself. According to the Los Angeles Times, authorities said the incident did not appear to be terrorism. San Bruno police confirmed on Twitter that they were responding to an active shooter earlier in the day. They previously tweeted there was police activity at 901 Cherry Avenue, where the company's campus is located. They advised the public to stay out of the area, which they did. President Trump tweeted that he was briefed on the incident and added our thoughts and prayers are with everybody involved. He also thanked law enforcement and responders who are on the scene. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders previously told um, uh, news stations that the president was briefed and they are monitoring the situation. San Bruno, Bruno City Manager Connie Jackson told KTVU Television that the situation was relatively secure about an hour after the gunshots were first reported. Users on social media indicated ambulances were arriving, nearby offices uh, were, un, uh, were on lockdown. Many claimed there was an active shooter. The uh, police department in San Bruno Uh, told Fox News that officers are responding to the scene and they received at least 50 calls reporting gunshots, most from those who were on campus at the time. There were also aerial images uh, by the television station showing officers on the scene with some patting down a line of people outside who were sort of in a bunch waiting to go one by one by law enforcement to be patted down to assure that they were not Uh, uh, also uh, responsible for the shots fired. Todd Sherman, who identified himself as a product manager at YouTube, claimed on Twitter that he was in a meeting at the building when they uh, heard people running. He said he and others made their way to the exits. And at one point, when he looked down, he saw blood dripping on the floor and stairs. He said he saw authorities on the scene and added that he was uh, now on his way home. That has been unconfirmed, and some have contradicted that version of events. Nonetheless, that's one eyewitness account. The California Highway Patrol says that the San Bruno police requested their assistance with a perimeter regarding reports of an active shooter. And of course, before you're on the scene and things are uh, are controlled, you don't know how many shooters there may in fact be. But regarding the situation, Google Communications tweeted that they were coordinating with authorities. We'll provide official information from Google and YouTube as it becomes available. The FBI San Francisco office also tweeted that agents were at the scene in support of our local law enforcement partners. The San Bruno police were the lead agency. They added the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives tweeted that their San Francisco office was also responding to the scenes. Again, this uh, having taken place earlier today, 1246 this afternoon. Uh, The situation somewhat fluid, although uh, the shooter has now ended her own life in what is a rather unusual situation involving a woman as the shooter. But again, we're being told this was something of a domestic violence situation. Now, it's difficult to know if that is, in fact, the case. And my guess is in the next day or so, we'll get better information and detail about what the motive may have been, who the shooter was, who the intended victim or victims were. And uh, that story will um, become a bit clearer. But nonetheless, that was a breaking news story from earlier today. In other news, the Trump administration officials say they will impose quotas on federal immigration judges in an attempt to speed up deportations. Uh, Justice Department officials cited enormous court backlogs. These performance metrics are designed to increase productivity and efficiency in the system without compromising due process. Meantime, President Trump lamented the sluggishness of the deportation process in a series of tweets Monday night. As ridiculous as it sounds, the laws of our country do not easily allow us to send those crossing our southern border back where they came from. A whole big wasted procedure must take place. Mexico and Canada have tough immigration laws, whereas ours 
uh, are an Obama joke. Act Congress, uh, in all caps, uh, Trump uh, tweeted. The Justice Department's Executive Office for Immigration Review says judges must complete 700 cases a year to earn a satisfactory grade. They currently are completing uh, an average of 678 cases per year, according to the Justice Department. It doesn't seem that there's much of a difference, but depending on the number of judges and that additional 25 cases a year may make a difference. I'm not altogether sure. Well, U.S. bound a U.S. bound caravan is drawing the uh, pre- the president's ire, um, and he says it illustrates Obama's Mexico failure. Uh, Mexico claimed just four years ago it had absolute control of the southern border. Apparently, it does not. The planned uh, stringent security checks appear to have broken down or been bypassed by the caravan of more than one thousand Central Americans making their way through the country in route to the United States. More on that in a few moments. And the president has called for the military to guard the border, following the examples of George W. Bush and Barack Obama, both of whom did the same. You're uh, listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, Vladimir Putin may be coming to Washington. Well, there's a big question mark behind that statement. The Trump administration sparked some speculation of a meeting between President Trump and Russian leader Vladimir Putin at the White House with escalating tension between the United States and Russia. Well, the administration says it is amenable to a White House meeting between the presidents of Russia and the United States, raising the prospect of the Russian president's first Washington visit in more than a decade. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said the White House was among a number of potential venues discussed in Trump's telephone call last month with Putin. The Kremlin said earlier Monday that Trump invited Putin during that call. Both sides said they uh, had not started preparations for a potential visit. Putin last visited the Oval Office in 2005 during a White House meeting with President George W. Bush. And finally, in uh, some of the lead stories, wildcat dominance. In the end, there was just no stopping Villanova. And there was no stopping Dante DiVincenzo. The redshirt sophomore scored 18 points in the first half to help Villanova pull away from Michigan as the Wildcats defeated the Wolverines 79-62 at the uh, San Antonio game Monday night to capture the second NC2A men's basketball championship in three seasons. The win not only capped a 36-4 campaign for Villanova, it also capped one of the great three seasons run in college basketball history since the start of the 2015-2016 season rather the Wildcats have won 103 games and lost just 13 are you a fan of basketball Clark ah he's busy has no idea I'm talking to him are you a basketball fan no yeah me neither I did watch the uh, I should mention the the women's game that took place on Sunday afternoon. That was a magnificent game as well. Anyway, I'm more into football than basketball. Well, the organization behind the 1,000-person strong caravan of Central Americans surging toward the United States' southern border accused the president of bullying immigrants and threatening mass violence, while Trump again warned the advancing procession had better be stopped, which is what Mexico promised it would do, swearing that its uh, 
southern border was uh, fully under control. Pueblo Sin Fronteras, a Peoples Without Border, fired back at the president after the, uh, the tweet uh, tirade urging Congress to invoke the nuclear option requiring only a simple majority to pass legislation in order to pass bills for the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program and Tough Immigration Reform. He tweeted this morning the uh, caravan estimated to be carrying more than a thousand Central Americans had better be stopped before reaching the United States border with Mexico. The big caravan of people from Honduras now coming across Mexico and heading to our weak laws border had better be stopped before it gets uh, there. Cash, na- cash cow NAFTA is in play, as is foreign aid to Honduras and the countries that allow this to happen. Congress must act now, the president tweeted. Well, the organization... Uh, uh, said in a statement that Trump was using news of the caravan to threaten DACA recipients and force Congress to pass his favored legislation on the 1st of April which was Sunday, the president opportunistically invoked refugee caravans as a pretext, they suggested. It added that Trump is trying to turn Central American refugees and other immigrant communities against each other. The group was likely referring to the caravan being uh, a bargaining chip on the ongoing talks surrounding the renegotiation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, which the president has threatened to pull out of unless uh, Mexico does more to prevent illegal immigrants from coming into the United States. He said yesterday the caravan was coming because the people in it uh, thought they could take advantage of the certain Obama-era protections for immigrants. In the face of this bullying and these threats of mass violence, we continue to stand in solidarity with displaced peoples of all races, ethnicities, creeds, abilities, and genders and sexual identities, the organization said in response. Well, on Monday night, the president urged tough laws and the building of a U.S.-Mexican wall, border wall to prevent countries from sending many of their people to the United States. And today, the president said, that the U.S. military would be used to secure the southern border until the wall can be built. Um, He said the um, United States will secure the southern border with the military until that time. He made the remarks during a meeting with Baltic leaders where he said he had discussed the matter with the Defense Secretary Jim Mattis. Until we can have a wall and proper security, we're going to be guarding our border with the military. He said that's a big step. We really haven't done that before, which is not accurate. It has been done by two previous administrations. In fact, the two previous or certainly not very much before, which is more accurate. At a news conference later, he confirmed the plan plan saying the border is unprotected by our horrible, horrible and very unsafe laws. That was a quote. We don't have laws. We have a catch and release, he said. You catch and then you immediately release and people come back years later for a court case, except they virtually never come back. Well, Trump didn't offer specifics, but uh, the move appears to be um, at least partly motivated by that caravan. I've mentioned a couple of times reports uh, angered the president um, and he is uh, presumably taking uh, action to prevent that uh, movement from successfully entering the United States. Now, people entering the country from certain South American countries by law are required to be admitted. So it's not altogether clear who in that uh, so-called caravan uh, is, in fact, entitled to entry into the United States. And also the president made an offhand comment earlier suggesting that Uh, The Mexican president had, in fact, broken up that caravan earlier in the day. Not altogether clear which version of events is true at this time. Uh, But as it uh, if it is continuing to move forward, approaches the U.S. border, perhaps it will be clearer what the status actually is.
Well, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, Justice Department is set up uh, for uh, quotas on immigration judges to speed up deportations or at least hearings to determine if deportation is the right solution. New case quotas imposed on federal immigration judges as the caravan of immigrants makes its way here. Ed Henry reports that Trump administration officials said they will, in fact, impose quotas on federal immigration judges in an attempt to speed up those hearings. A Justice Department official speaking uh, cited enormous court backlogs. These performance metrics are designed to increase productivity and efficiency in the system without compromising due process. Meantime, the president lamented the sluggishness of the process Monday night. As ridiculous as it sounds, the laws of our country do not easily allow us to send those crossing our southern border illegally where they came from, back to where they came from. A whole big wasted procedure must take place. Due process. Well, the Justice Department's uh, Executive Office for Immigration Review says judges must complete 700 cases a year uh, to earn a satisfactory grade, and that's about 25 cases more per year than is currently the case at 678 cases per year. The new request averages um, uh, to about three per day, and judges with high caseloads can appeal internally to waive that requirement. Critics claim speed requirements undermine judges' independence and will uh, cause some cases to be decided too hastily. Uh, The new standards, which uh, take effect October 1st, include a host of other measures indicating how much time judges should spend on different types of cases and court motions. The Washington Post was first to report that plan. Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who oversees the immigration courts, has called repeatedly for more speed as an increase in deportation arrests has pushed the court backlog above 650,000 cases. Still, he had uh, held off on numerical quotas until now. Well, coming up in uh, just a few moments, we're going to talk with Charles Krismer. He is the author of uh, a new book on the heart's of the fathers, leaving a legacy that lasts. Uh, Mr. Krismer is the founder and president of the Save America Ministries. He's often been called a John the Baptist of our time. I'm not sure by whom, but he brings a prophetic message to these final moments of history. Um, and his daily radio broadcast viewpoint and many books have positioned him as a a voice declaring vision for the nation. Anyway, we're going to talk about his book, Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That lasts and building an eternal legacy, which distinguishes it from just leaving a history of misdeeds and um, useless information behind. So anyway, that's coming up in just a few moments. Also in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Travis Weber. He's the Family Research Council's director for the Center of Religious Liberty or of the Center for Religious Liberty. We're going to talk about a case they've been following for quite some time involving a um, Air Force colonel and his constitutional right to exercise his sincerely held religious beliefs. Uh, we'll talk with him in the five o'clock hour. Also, I had a chance earlier today to talk with Stephen Curtis Chapman. As you might uh, know, he's coming to the Portland metro area for a concert that's uh, really quite different from his previous visits here. It's Stephen Curtis Chapman's solo, A Night of uh, Hits, History and Influences. That's Thursday, April the 26th at East Hill Church. There are a few tickets still available, so if you are planning to come, you need to log on to kpdq.com and uh, purchase those tickets as soon as possible. By the way, he also has a new book out. It's titled Between Heaven and the Real World, My Story, and that's a bestseller already, but it's a great precursor to the uh, to the concert. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Charles Krismer up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest writes that fathers are indispensable to the lives of their children. Study after study has proven that fathers play a critical role toward reducing school dropout rates, substance abuse, suicide, precocious sexual activity, domestic violence, and so on. Yet in spite of the clear evidence, fatherlessness has continued and alternative family configurations proliferated. Today, over 40% of all babies in the United States are born to unwed mothers. Approximately 25% of children under the age of 18 are being raised without a father, and 50% or 85% in some communities of all children in the United States spend some portion of their childhood years living with only their mothers. Well, since the sexual revolution of the 60s, the majority of pastors, congregations, and denominations have changed their historic positions, becoming more tolerant of divorce, remarriage, and cohabitation. Feminism has disparaged men and ridiculed masculinity as Hollywood presents men as bumbling idiots, womanizers, or control freaks. This has undermined both the traditional family and fatherhood. The consequences, regardless of the cause, are clear and progressively catastrophic. Well, in his new book, Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts, my next guest, attorney and talk show host, uh, Mr. Um, Charles Krismer, calls fatherlessness a curse that is plaguing a culture that has succumbed to radical individual he joins us today to talk about that book. He has spent more than 30 years in pastoral roles, being involved in more than 10 denominations. He spent nine years as a public school teacher, 20 years as a trial attorney, and most recently a radio broadcaster. With his daily show, Viewpoint, he's been referred to as a prophet for our time. In addition to King of the Mountain, he has authored more than six books, including Out of Egypt, Renewing the Soul of America, and Lasting Love, Enduring Secrets for Marital Success. Today, he joins us to talk about his latest book, Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Georgine, you leave me breathless. Uh, maybe <laughs> I, I must be about 150 years old. <laughs> well, I, I figured you must be. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly uh, some of that has been crossover periods of time, but uh, I did leave the practice of law 24 years ago. Uh, the Lord spoke to my heart that uh, I'd been pleading the cause of men, uh, men long enough, that he wanted me to plead his cause in the land as a voice of the church, declaring vision for the nation, America's greatest crisis hour. So uh, we up and uh, left 30 years of business ministry and political investment in Southern California and uh, formed Save America Ministries, dedicated to rebuilding the foundations of faith and freedom. So uh, that gives you the thumbnail sketch and I'll tell you, uh, my heart has just been broken uh, looking at the plight of our families in general, but fatherhood in, in uh, particular. Uh, fatherhood, the destruction of fatherhood, is the destruction of all authority. It is a shaking of the fist, not only in the face of our families and our fathers, but in the face of Father God himself. And uh, that puts us in a very unenviable position mm-hmm. as a country. I think many of us uh, consider that uh, fatherlessness and the uh, the role of men in, in their families as being an insignificant uh, change in our culture. But you yeah. rightly point out, and I think there's, there's uh, biblical authority to back that up, that this is uh, the most significant social problem facing America. Well, I'm not, the, I'm not really the one to have said that. But it's been said by numerous observers, uh, not necessarily Christian, but uh, secular observers, sociologists and uh, politicians and so on, 
They're saying there's just nothing like this. This is historic. It's unprecedented. And uh, it's, it's causing such devastation at every level across our country. And it's been in the process for 50 years mm-hmm. now. Ever since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, uh, my wife and I were married in 1966. So we've been married 51 and a half years now. <clears throat> but uh, we witnessed all of this. Uh, I witnessed this full first as a school teacher and then in my uh, practice of law for 20 years and as a pastor and so on and broadcaster. I've witnessed it all from coast to coast, and it's not a pretty picture. You begin the book with a reference to the Titanic, which is such a a useful picture of of the level of concern we ought to have. And you write, the lights flickered out, and in a thunderous roar, everything on the super ship seemed to break loose. Beds and broilers lurched as the black hull of the RMS Titanic tilted perpendicularly. Its three great propellers reared against the heavens, and then it was gone and 1,522 souls with it. This was a a vessel that was thought unsinkable, unthinkable that there could ever be a disaster that would bring this uh, this thing down. And even those who were on board were unaware of the danger, the peril that they faced. Mm -hmm. Put put the Titanic prophecy, as you title your chapter, in perspective in terms of what we're facing. Well, Georgine, uh, the reality is that the 106th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic uh, will occur in about a week and a half. And uh, yes, indeed, 1,500 and some souls went to the bottom of Davy Jones' locker. None of them expected that to happen. Most of the people that were left on board were men, many of them fathers and grandfathers. Now, I want you to think for a moment. If you had been on board the Titanic and you know and you knew you would likely never see your children or grandchildren again, What would go through your mind? What would your legacy be? That's the issue. What would your legacy be? And of course, the subtitle to the book, uh, Hearts of the Fathers, is Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. That's what I'm concerned about. Uh, Ever since our first daughter was born, uh, seven years after we were married, uh, this has been a a mantle of uh, responsibility that I have felt Uh, and each of my three daughters, if they were to join you on the air, I think would confirm that their daddy uh, saw fathering and fatherhood as his premier responsibility after being uh, an honorable and loving husband to his wife and a servant of the Lord. Now, in your book, um, Hearts of the Fathers, you cite the profound impact of fatherlessness. And again, in our culture, that is minimized to the point where fathers are virtually, in terms of entertainment media particularly, uh, are uh, unnecessary and uh, certainly not essential. What are some of these impacts uh, of fatherlessness and and what can be done? Well, uh, first of all, uh, let's just show how dramatic the opposition to fathering fathers, men, and masculinity is. In 1996, excuse me, in 2016, Jill Soloway, who was receiving an award for director, best director or something, an Emmy Award, made a public statement that was aired all over the country. She said, down with patriarchy. I want you to think about that. Down with patriarchy. What she did 
was declare war against fathers, against men, against fatherhood, against all things masculine, and basically elevated the feminine to be lordship over our country, over our society. And this is exactly what God said would happen when a nation abandons him. He said women and children will rule over them. The prophets uh, foretold this. And uh, many believe that we're in the uh, stages of the, the final stages before the Lord's return. We see all of these things taking place in front of us. And uh, the great prophet Malachi, uh, 400 years before the birth of Jesus, was given a warning by God, a warning of compassion and mercy, but a warning that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, he would send forth Elijah the prophet to call the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest he strike the earth with a curse. Well, guess what? We are already stricken with the curse. The curse isn't coming. It's here. It's absolutely here. Uh, for instance, let's, let's link this to uh, the, the shootings. Did you know that almost all of the shootings in the schools in America have been done, perpetrated by young men who had no fathers? This is not a mystery. This is the clear indication. Everybody wants to cry for guns. Take away the guns. The guns are not the problem. The problem is fatherlessness. We're going to continue our the room. continue our conversation in just a few moments, but I do need to take a break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Charles Krismer. Krismeyer, he's the author of Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 51 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing our conversation with Charles Krismeyer. He's the author of Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. Now let's talk about uh, legacy and what, uh, what kind of legacy uh, lasts. Because everyone leaves one, whether or not it's one worthy of, uh, of recalling is another matter. Isn't that interesting? We all leave a legacy, whether it's witting or unwitting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, but uh, the older you get, the more you realize you want to make sure you left a legacy that lasts. And uh, <clears throat> there, are, there are two different aspects of fathering, Georgie. Uh, one is what you might call a generic uh, secular view of uh, fathering, and that would be you provide for your children, you... Uh, uh, go to work every day, you make sure that they're protected and have a house over their head and that kind of thing, and uh, hopefully you will be present with them. The presence of the Father is the thing that really counts. And it's not that those other things don't count, but the presence of the Father is what counts. You'll remember uh, Moses back in the Old Testament. He said to the Father, God, he said, unless your presence goes with me, I just can't do this. Well, that's true. The Father's presence is just absolutely essential. If the Father is home, but he's just watching television or playing video games or whatever, his presence isn't really there. It's a figment of the imagination. It's a pretense. His presence is not there because there's no connection that's being made with the kids. When I came home from law, uh, from law practice every evening, and I had a very, very busy practice and so on, uh, I made out a point. We, we had meals together every night. Uh, there were no cell phones. There were no televisions on. Uh, we had real, legitimate, and personal conversations around the table. Every night, I would spend quality time with my daughters. I had three daughters and uh, would go uh, you know, at bedtime and would share with them 
the principles of the scripture, the stories, and uh, their applications. Well, that's the second aspect of fathering. The second aspect of fathering is uh, providing moral and spiritual direction, modeling by precept and by example. That is critically important. And you can't accomplish that by just sending your kids off to church or even going with them to church. That's not where the real fathering takes place. The real fathering takes place in my home. And home is where the heart is, and kids know whether their father's heart is really with them. So that would be the two overarching things. And, of course, the book, Hearts of the Fathers, is not really like almost all the other books out there about fathering and so on. It's not really a culture war book, although it does have a lot of the statistics and all of that in it. But the primary focus of this book is on, okay, now what do we do? Now what would God have me do, and how do I go about doing it? You refer to the foundational essentials of fatherhood. Share some of these um, and why they're so vital. Well, foundation essentials of fatherhood, the number one would be presence. You have to be present. If you're not present, uh, you're not going to accomplish uh, that which uh, God would have you accomplish. You have to have purpose, purpose. Fatherhood doesn't just happen. You have to have a purpose. You have to have a vision. And that's one of the things that I try so hard in this book to accomplish is the casting of a vision for fatherhood. Uh, When we're in a situation, Georgine, where in 1995, George Gallup, pollster to the nation, went before the Christian publishing industry in Dallas, Texas, and declared we were a nation of biblical illiterates. Hmm. That said something. Mm -hmm. In other words, we're now 20-some years, 25 years down the track. And if, if you think it's gotten better, no way, no how. In fact, men are not even reading. Men are not even... Should I share with you what I just discovered? I just discovered that since this book was released on March 13th, this is fresh, hot off the press, but since it was released on March 13th, two-thirds of all those who are buying this book are women. Hmm. Now, why do you think that would be? I know who they want to read the book. (laughs) Well, women want to read this book. All they have to do is see the cover and they grab for it. Men are touched by the cover, but guess what? They don't have the vision. For the past, oh, I'd say at least uh, a generation, the number one cry of Christian women in this country from coast to coast has been, why can't or won't my husband be the spiritual leader of our home? Hmm. I want you to think about that. If you think fatherlessness is a problem out there, oh no, fatherlessness, the lack of true fathering vision And understanding and commitment is every bit as strong among professing Christians. And it brings pain to my heart. When I wrote this book, it was the easiest of the nine books that I've ever written. People look at these books and they can't believe uh, how somebody could even write them. But uh, this particular book was the easiest of all. And the reason, I didn't have to do a whole lot of research for it. It was as if God gave me the ability to crawl up in his lap as a father and have him whisper into my ear his heart for fathers. It's just, it's hard for me to hold back the tears, even Mm -hmm. as a lawyer, hard for me to hold back the tears because I realize how profound the situation is. You call the command to discipleship a father's greatest responsibility. Yes. Well, 
<clears throat> that is the Great Commission. A lot of people think that uh, the Great Commission is about evangelism and going out uh, to foreign countries or going out and getting people to uh, make confessions of Christ and so on, but that's not the heart of evangelism. Jesus said the heart of evangelism is teaching people to obey everything he's commanded. He said, you make disciples and I'll build my church. We've been busy building churches and haven't done much in making disciples. And a disciple is one who learns to follow the Lord by obeying his word and his, vo and his voice. And this is one of the things that's missing in fathering today in God's house. And this is why lawlessness has become the earmark of our time. Just as Jesus and his apostles said it would be in these end times, that lawlessness would prevail. Well, guess what? God's fundamental, uh, what should we say, overarching uh, means of providing lawfulness and authority in the earth is through fathers. Mm. But we've had just about how a desperate this situation is. Absolutely. We have just about a minute. But let me ask you, what's the most important message you have for men, for fathers and grandfathers about how to leave a lasting legacy? I would say seek the Lord with a whole heart. Mm -hmm. Go before him. Cry out to him. Take Malachi chapter four, the last two verses and wait on the Lord. What would he say to you? I asked the Lord, why? How are the fathers going to turn, be turned to the children and the children to the fathers? The Lord said, there's only one way, and that's for the heart of the fathers to be turned to me. Mm -hmm. He says, return unto me. So what we have to do is ask, okay, Lord, how can I, should I return unto you? That's the hope for leaving a true legacy that lasts. The book is titled Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. There's so much more in the book than our conversation did not reflect. Uh, the book is published by WND Books, and I would highly recommend it. It make a great gift for Father's Day, which will be upon us before we know it. Thank you so much for talking with us today. I appreciate your heart for men and for fathers and for talking with us today. My privilege, Georgine. God bless. Again, Charles Krismer, Krismeyer, Hearts of the Fathers, Leaving a Legacy That Lasts. Five o'clock, top of the hour, news and traffic up next. When we return, some more news. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, seven minutes after five o'clock. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. In this hour, we'll talk with Travis Weber. He's the Family Research Council's director of the Center for Religious Liberty. They've been following a case involving the Air Force Review Boards Agency that has recently ruled in favor of Colonel uh, Bohannon and his constitutional right to exercise his sincerely held religious belief, but not without a previous controversy. We'll, we'll tell you more about that uh, when he joins us in the next segment. We're also going to uh, share a conversation I had earlier today with Stephen Curtis Chapman. He's going to be here in the Portland metro area in concert. That's Thursday, April 26th at East Hill Church. There are tickets still available, but they are going fast. So if you're interested, I want to encourage you to go to kpdq.com where you can find all the important details. He's also written a book, Between Heaven and the Real World, My Story. It's a bestseller. came out last year. Uh, might be of some interest to you as well. Anyway, we'll share that conversation with you later in this hour, um, too.
Well, the top news story of the day uh, came from an active shooter involving a woman, which is highly unusual at the headquarters of YouTube. Police confirmed that a woman is believed to be that shooter. She opened fire at a YouTube headquarters in San Bruno, California. She wounded at least four people before apparently killing herself. Three people were transported to San Francisco General Hospital, according to a spokesman, including a 36-year-old man in critical condition, a 32-year-old woman in serious condition, and a 27-year-old woman in fair condition. KGO-TV reported the shooter was believed to be a Caucasian woman wearing a headscarf. Some described it as a hijab, but that's not uh, clear at this point, and a dark top, but police did not immediately confirm that fact. Witnesses uh, told uh, KTVU that the suspect shot her boyfriend before killing herself, according to the Los Angeles Times. Authorities said the incident did not appear to be terrorism. Uh, Zach uh, Voorhees, a senior software engineer at the company, told the Associated Press that the fire alarm went off, but employees didn't realize it was an active shooting situation. As they calmly exited the building, he said he saw a shooter in the courtyard shouting, come at me or come get me. Voorhees said he froze, saw a victim on the uh, on his back uh, with what appeared to be a gunshot wound to the stomach. An officer armed with an assault rifle then entered through a security door. San Bruno police confirmed on Twitter that they uh, were responding to an active shooter. They previously tweeted there was police activity at, at 901 Cherry Avenue, where the company's campus is located. They advised the public to stay out of that area as expected. President Trump tweeted that he was briefed on the incident and added our thoughts and prayers are with everybody involved. He also thanked law enforcement and responders who are on the scene. White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders Huckabee, or rather Huckabee Sanders, previously told uh, news sources that the president uh, was briefed and that they were monitoring the situation. San Bruno City Manager Connie Jackson told the local television station the situation was relatively secure about an hour after the gunshots were first reported. Users on uh, social media indicated that ambulances were arriving and nearby uh, offices were on lockdown. Many claimed there was an active shooter at that time. At about 12.46 this morning, the situation rather uh, fluid. It appeared to be a domestic violence case. Again, five victims, including the shooter, uh, were uh, injured in this uh, Um, exchange of fire, the boyfriend apparently being the target. The San Bruno Police Department says that they received at least 50 calls reporting gunshots in that area. Uh, There were aerial images from KTVU showing officers on the scene with some patting down a line of uh, people outside the facility. Todd Sherman, who identified himself as a product manager at YouTube, claimed on Twitter that he was in a meeting at the building when they heard people running. He said he, uh, he and others made their way to the exit and at one point uh, when he looked down, saw uh, on the floor evidence uh, that a shooting had taken place. He said he saw authorities on the scene before departing. The California Highway Patrol says that the San Bruno police requested their assistance with the perimeter regarding reports uh, of an active shooter there. And regarding the situation, Google Communications tweeted that they were coordinating with authorities and will provide official information from Google and YouTube as it becomes available. The FBI uh, San Francisco office tweeted that agents were at the scene in support of the local law enforcement partners. The San Bruno police were the lead agency, they went on to add. And the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and Explosives, ATF, tweeted that their San Francisco field office was also responding to to the scene. But again, at about 1246 this afternoon, uh, an active shooter, a female, um, was involved in a, a shooting, uh, apparently a domestic violence situation. There were five victims, including the shooter.
Andrew, who ultimately, we are told, ended her own life. One uh, of the victims was in critical condition, one in serious, the others uh, downgraded. The shooter uh, died of self-inflicted wounds. And again, the target was uh, a boyfriend, we are being told. Well, in other news, for the first time, the U.S. government has publicly acknowledged the existence in Washington of what appears to be a rogue device or devices, plural, plural rather, that foreign spies and criminals could be using to track individual cell phones and intercept calls and messages. Now, the use of what are known as cell phone site simulators by foreign powers has long been a concern. But American intelligence and law enforcement agencies, which uh, use such eavesdropping equipment themselves, have been silent on the issue until now. In a March 26th letter to Oregon Senator Ron Wyden, the Department of Homeland Security acknowledged that last year it identified suspected unauthorized cell site stimulators, or rather simulators, in the nation's capital. The agency said it hadn't determined the type of the devices in use or who might have been operating them, nor did it say how many were detected or where. The agency's response, obtained by the Associated Press from Wyden's office, suggested little has been done about such equipment, known popular as stingrays after a brand common among U.S. uh, police departments. The Federal Communications Commission, which regulates the nation's airwaves, formed a task force on the subject four years ago, but it never produced a report and no longer meets regularly. Well, the devices work by tricking mobile devices into locking onto them instead of legitimate cell towers, revealing the exact location of a particular cell phone. More sophisticated versions can eavesdrop on calls by forcing phones to step down to older unencrypted 2G wireless technology. Some attempt to plant malware. Uh, They can cost anywhere from $1,000 to $200,000. They're commonly the size of a briefcase. Some are as small as a cell phone. They can be placed in a car next to a government building. The most powerful can be deployed in low-flying aircraft. Thousands of members of the military, the NSA, the CIA, uh, CIA and FBI, and the rest of the national security apparatus live and work in the Washington area. They're Surveillance savvy among them encrypt their phones and uh, data communications and employ um, electronic countermeasures, but unsuspecting citizens could fall prey. Senator Wyden, a Democrat, wrote DHS in November requesting information about unauthorized use of cell site simulators. The reply from DHS official Christopher Krebs noted that the agency had observed um, anonymous anomalous activity consistent with stingrays in the Washington area and officials who spoke on condition of anonymity because the letter has not been publicly released added that the devices were detected in a 90 day trial that began in January of last year with equipment from a Las Vegas uh, based DHS contractor ESD America. Not sure, uh, not quite sure what to make of all that, but it certainly reveals a weakness in our uh, in our system. Meanwhile, special counsel Robert Mueller was given the green light to investigate President Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, and his work with the Ukrainian government, as well as claims Manafort colluded with the uh, Kremlin, according to court documents filed last uh, or rather late Monday. The newly disclosed August 2nd, 2017th memo from uh, Deputy Attorney General Rob Rosenstein show that Mueller was authorized to go after Manafort on multiple fronts in an investigation that has resulted in criminal charges against 19 people and three Russian companies. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Travis Weber with the Family Research Council. He's the director of the Center for Religious Liberty. We're going to find out what happened with Colonel Bohannon attempting to live out his Christian faith and challenged by the U.S. Air Force.
We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, the Family Research Council has been tracking the case of Colonel Leland Bohannon, who was punished by the Air Force for his refusal on religious grounds to publicly affirm the same-sex spouse of a subordinate. We'll explain that in a moment. The Secretary of the Air Force, Heather Wilson, recently announced that the Air Force Review Board's agency has ruled in favor of Colonel Bohannon's constitutional rights to exercise his sincerely held religious belief. But why was this an issue in the first place? Well, here to talk with us about that is Travis Weber. He is the Family Research Council's director of the Center for Religious Liberty. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, let me ask you to tell us a little bit of uh, Colonel Bohannon's story. Uh, Sure. So this is a a decorated Air Force officer who's had a stellar career, you know, flown some of the finest uh, aviation equipment or our country has to offer. And yet this was almost all derailed uh, simply by an an upset uh, subordinate who was upset that Colonel Bohannon had a religious objection to signing a certificate for this person's same-sex spouse. Uh, Colonel Bohannon uh, had the certificate signed by someone else in the Air Force as a higher rank, yet that didn't satisfy this individual and they filed a a complaint with the Air Force. Um, You know, right here, we, we have to observe that uh, you know, this person was not satisfied, even though this certificate was signed. He wanted it signed by Colonel Bohannon. He wanted to force him to put his signature on it. And this was obviously a, something that Colonel Bohannon could not do. So a complaint was filed. Uh, Colonel Bohannon retained um, legal representation from First Liberty Institute, and FRC was publicly supportive of him. And thankfully, the Air Force has vindicated his religious freedom legally to not to be forced into signing such a certificate. So not only was the certificate signed, but it was signed by someone of a higher rank than Colonel Bohannon. Yes, that's true. And, um, you know, th- this is important because you know, in, in this world where we're seeing more and more religious freedom conflicts, you know, th- things like this are, are helpful and illustrative in showing that for a lot of people, it, it's not a matter of getting what you're looking for from the government or the government authority, but rather forcing someone who objects to be a part of that process or facilitation of the service or whatever you're seeking. Uh, you know, and this is important because Colonel Rohannon uh, didn't stand in the way of the signature being placed on the certificate. He just didn't want his signature on there. Yet, you know, this person who, who is opposing him and complaining about him was not happy with a signature on there, wanted Colonel Hannon's on there. And um, it's important for people to understand this. My understanding is last December, the Family Research Council, along with American Family Association, delivered a petition with 77,024 signatures to the Air Force Secretary in support of Colonel uh, Bohannon. Tell us a, a little about that uh, petition and what uh, Secretary Wilson did in response. Yeah, so, the, I mean, the petition basically explains Colonel Bohannon's case and offers people a chance to to be a part of making their voices heard um, to their government. Um, you know, with, with the election of President Trump, we've seen some changes in the, in the agencies and good leadership being in place now that's going to protect religious freedom. Yet things like this continue to happen because you have uh, bureaucrats and policies that are not fully enacted in terms of, the, for instance, the religious freedom executive order filtering down to the DOD level and the other agencies yet. So this type of thing, we need to let our government uh, know where we stand on, and we offer people a chance to do that with this petition, deliver them to the Secretary of the Air Force, 
And now, um, with that and other assistance at First Liberty, First Liberty Institute's rec, uh, representation of Colonel Wilhand, you have Secretary Wilson affirming that the Air Force protected religious freedom of Colonel Wilhand and making clear that current Air Force law and policy protect people like him. It's just a matter of, of making sure that the people responsible for adjudicating these types of cases understand that. Now, the petition and certainly the legal representation wanted to have any um, indication of this conflict removed from uh, uh, Colonel Bohannon's record. Uh, but in addition to correct, to correct rather the Air Force policy to ensure that this doesn't happen again, was that also a part of the decision uh, that was made with regard to this case? Well, you know, I think uh, people are certainly on notice that you better not do this to anyone else in the Air Force. You know, the, the decision really immediately affects Colonel Bohannon, but uh, what it does is make clear that the Secretary of the Air Force, with authority over this review board and other, um, you know, Air Force policy in other respects, um, it, it makes clear that this secretary will protect religious freedom. So I highly doubt that we'll see a similar instance arise. Uh, in the future, because basically, you know, where the secretary is going to come down on these issues, even if, you know, the, the, the administrative law system of the Air Force doesn't function quite in the same respect to to other areas of uh, judicial precedent. Uh, this does put people on notice. And this is very significant. Uh, I think it's it's very significant. Uh, obviously, we wanted to see Colonel Bohannon protected, but we don't want this to happen to other yeah. people, even if their cases we never hear about. Them. They, we, they, we may never hear about folks, and we need them to be protected as decisions are made about their religious freedom, too. Well, you made an, an important point uh, that President Trump uh, last May signed an executive order protecting religious freedom, but it was that same month uh, that Colonel Bohannon found out the hard way uh, that not everybody in the military had, in fact, gotten that memo. So it's important to to make uh, make this an issue so that this does not impact others, whether that's in the Air Force or other branches of the military. That is very true, you know, and, and the executive order was issued. The DOJ has since issued guidance on religious freedom, but other agencies haven't always followed through. And we haven't really seen anything, seen anything solid from DOD at this point. The USDA responded to a case and, and protected religious freedom for someone facing a USDA issue. Um, the HHS has followed through. DOD, you know, th- this is, I would say, one of the first significant uh, uh, adjudications of religious freedom rights to come out of DOD in the last year or so under the Trump administration. And uh, it matters. And I hope that DOD continues to follow this type of thinking on religious freedom in other areas. Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, who is uh, Family Research Council's executive vice president, pointed out that for an Air Force secretary to overrule an inspector general is quite rare and sends a message that the religious freedoms of service members will be respected and protected. So this was significant on a number of levels. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the Air Force Review Board's agency you know, received the administrative appeal of Colonel Bohannon, but, um, you, you know, obviously Secretary Wilson has authority over that. And, and you know, I suspect that what went on here was a, a, a clear-eyed view of, of the current religious freedom policies on the books and legal requirements. When, when looked at objectively, you know, a lawyer will understand that they protect someone like Colonel Bohannon. So, you know, I expect that uh, the Air Force really took an objective look at this, took a step back and said, Let's kind of step out of the cultural pressure of the moment, which leads people to to reach results that are not in accordance with the law. 
uh, on these issues of religious freedom and sexuality. And, um, you know, I'm thankful that the Secretary of the Air Force reached this result, and, and I hope, you know, this continues. Well, we certainly hope that is the case. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Anytime. Appreciate it. Again, uh, Travis Weber is the Family Research Council's Director of the Center for Religious Liberty. And uh, thankfully, Air Force uh, Colonel Bohannon will be able to continue um, uh, to live his faith while serving our nation. Well, earlier today, I had an opportunity to uh, to talk with Stephen Curtis Chapman. I'm not generally um, excitable when it comes to talking to a celebrity, but it was very fun for me to have the opportunity to talk with Stephen Curtis Chapman, who, as you probably know, is coming to the Portland area on Thursday, April the 26th at East Hill Church for a very unique night of music. The concert is part of a, a um, tour that he's been on. It's Stephen Curtis Chapman, or SCC Solo, A Night of Hits, History, and Influences. And uh, in addition to playing some of the songs that we have uh, come to know and uh, love, he's going to spend a considerable amount of time telling stories about how he came up with the idea for the songs, what was going on in his life at that time. He's going to talk about his career, his family, uh, and uh, it's just going to be a great uh, evening. Well, again, I had the opportunity to talk with him about that, and we'll share that conversation with you coming up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you probably know, Stephen Curtis Chapman's solo, A Night of Hits, History and Influences, is coming to the Portland area Thursday, April the 26th at uh, East Hill Church in Gresham. The concert celebrates three decades of music from Stephen Curtis Chapman, the most enduring and award-winning Christian artist and now a best-selling author. It's an event for the entire family. You're not going to want to miss this. It's a setting that you've uh, you've not witnessed before in a concert with Stephen Curtis Chapman, and we are so excited to present him in concert. In a career that spanned 30 years, Stephen Curtis Chapman is the most awarded artist in Christian music history with 58 Gospel Music Association Dove Awards, 5 Grammys, an American Music Award, 48 number one singles, selling over 11 million albums, with 10 certified gold and platinum albums to his credit. He released his memoir, Between Heaven and the Real World last spring and uh, made the publisher's weekly bestsellers list two times and the Evangelical Christian Publishers Association bestsellers list as well. He continues performing on the road at numerous festivals and events. This summer, he uh, wrapped his third season hosting the monthly Sam's Place Music for the Spirit concert series at Nashville's historic Ryman Auditorium, where a portion of each ticket sale went to Show Hope, a movement that he and his wife, Mary Beth, started to uh, care for orphans. The pair of them are parents of six children, three of whom joined their family through adoption. They're National Angel in Adoption recipients and are the co-founders of Show Hope, dedicated to restoring hope to thousands of children living as orphans by breaking down the financial barriers between waiting children and loving families. More than 5,500 children from more than 60 countries have been impacted through Show Hope's adoption aid grants. And more than 2,400 children with acute medical and special needs have received loving care through Show Hope Care centers in China. Well, I'm exhausted just saying it. He's actually done it all. And I'm uh, just delighted to have you with us, Stephen Curtis Chapman. Thanks for joining us. Hey, you're so welcome. I'm very, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I think, in a way <laughs> for how busy I've been because of all that you just had to uh, exhaust yourself trying to explain and say but and and it did kind of make me tired listening i was like can i take a nap um but 
but I, I'm uh, very thankful to get to spend a few minutes talking to you today. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. Well, it's a, it's a delight to have you with us, and more importantly, to have you come back to Portland uh, and share an intimate concert here, something different than what we may have expected in, uh, in concerts in years past. Describe a little bit of this uh, solo uh, concert series, A Night of Hits, History, and Influence, and how it's different from what uh, we have seen you in before. Yeah. Well, I, um, for those who know anything about my music, they know that I have been at this for a little while now, um, 31 years ago, now that my first album came out, 1987. Um, and I like to say that I was 10 years old at the time, <laughs> which um, I like to say it, even though it's a lie when I say it, but um, it sounds good. But um, that, that was uh, a long time ago and uh, amazing journey that God has uh, allowed me to be a part of all these years through the music that he has uh, given me to share with people and the way it's connected me with the lives of so many people all over the country and literally around the world. It just uh, kind of blows my mind and humbles me uh, when I think about it. And I have, you know, of course, as a result of all that music and and uh, performances over the years. I've done a lot of different tours in a lot of different ways and had incredible musicians with me on many of my tours and bands that I've traveled with and, you know, lots of, you know, sound and lights and, you know, buses and trucks and all of that. But um, there's a saying here in Nashville where I, that I have called home for those 30 years uh, that says it all begins with a song. And that's really true. My relationship with the audience and the people that I've had this connection with over the years is all, it all began with a song and, um, and it still kind of goes back to that. And so as I was writing the book, telling my story, uh, my musical journey, my faith journey, my life journey to this point, I thought, you know, what's the best way to kind of set this to music in a way, because I'd love to go, sort of share this story with people uh, in a real kind of intimate setting uh, through music. And and I thought, you know, to just have the freedom that me sitting there with my guitar, kind of playing the songs the way they first sounded when I first wrote them, and even then kind of have the freedom to take people sort of into the influences in my life, musically, uh, spiritually, talk about, you know, my dad, who was the, you know, was and is probably one of the greatest musical influences and spiritual influences in my life. And, you know, my my years of growing up and, and watching even the the gospel change his life and then how that changed the music that we played together and growing up playing music with my family in church and my dad teaching me my very first song on the guitar, a Johnny Cash song, Folsom Prison Blues. You know, uh, from from Folsom Prison Blues to uh, to Bill uh, to Bill Gaither songs. You know, it was all everything in between. Um, you know, it's kind of what all went into the influence of that early music that would kind of plant the seeds that would bring the fruit of these songs all these years later. And I just thought it would be an amazing thing to get to kind of take people into that on that journey with me into those influences and where do these songs come from and and my. Of course, you know, I've always talked about my family mm-hmm. and my marriage to Mary Beth for these 33 years. But, you know, what if I could really sort of take people behind the curtain even more uh, as I wanted to do and, and purpose to do in my book, um, really honestly and transparently? You know, I'd love to be able to do that, you know, in a really kind of unique way uh, with music, with a musical night. And so that's really what this this night is. It's 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 as much 
story and you know uh it, I've, I've even said to some people it's almost if you've ever heard those um you know the prairie home companion the garrison keeler yeah. you know if there's music woven in with story and you're kind of taking people on this kind of telling this story and then there's musical you know little interludes and things that pull it all together and it's it's sort of, uh, it, in a way, even a little bit of that, you know, it's using my music to kind of weave this whole night together of a story. And the theme really of remembering is just the theme that kind of shows up all through the night, remembering my journey and my story, but but unto the end that others would be encouraged to remember their own journey and just God's faithfulness and, the, you know, the tears and, you know, the the valleys and the mountains and how God has journeyed with us. And then really, you know, shifting our our view forward, because remembering is, you know, is as much about remembering God's promises for what's to come for the unknown, you know, that's around the next yeah. end and knowing that God is faithful and he has been faithful. And, and so anyway, that's a that's kind of a little bit of, of what I hope this night will, will be about for the people that can be with me. Well, I know that uh, people here in this community are very excited about your coming. And for those who haven't yet purchased your tickets, you'd better hurry because we're practically uh, we're nearing being sold out. So it's a it's a good time to pick up the phone or go to kpdq.com for your tickets. You mentioned just briefly your book Between Heaven and the Real World, uh, My Story. It is a a telling of your life in a very compelling way. And I think one of the things that has set you apart from uh, lots of artists is that you've been very uh, open about your life and your family and the challenges that you faced in in terms of your faith and uh, your love for for others. Um, Has it been uh, a major part of your songwriting, which is such an amazing part of what you do, is write really good songs and tell really good stories very well? Um, Has that always been a a part of of who you are and how you express yourself? Yes, I think that's one of the things I've even learned about myself in writing this book, which is some kind of a, a neat sort of side benefit that I didn't see coming. Mm-hmm. And it's th- this concert's even given me an opportunity to explore that even a little bit further, um, which again, you know, after 30 plus years of doing this, it's pretty cool to find yourself sort of going, wow, I'm, I didn't even, I, di- I didn't even realize that about myself, you know, a- until I started to kind of share my story. And I, one of the things I think I've discovered is that songwriting was early on for me one of the ways that I began to find my voice. I share a lot in my book, and then I talk about it in the concert, that my brother, and I really talk a lot about my dad and my brother being the great singers in our family. I mean, they were the ones with the voices. And um, my brother had this great voice. He, he kind of got that from my dad. I got my guitar playing skills and, and love for, for the guitar from my dad. But Herbie was the singer, my older brother. And I, you know, I get to share a lot about that. But um, it, it was through writing songs that I think I began to find my voice. And, and I realized that, you know, even though I don't feel like as confident as a singer as when I was younger, when, I'm, when I sing a song that I've written, there's, there's something more unique and special about that, you know, and I feel like that's kind of how I, how I can communicate the things that are inside me. And really, as I look back at my journey in my life, that's so much of my faith journey has been, you know, realized through the music I've written. You know, it's, it's been, if no one else had listened or, you know, been, you know, encouraged by it at all, I would have, you know, it would have been just as important that I was writing these songs because they really have been the way that I feel like I've processed 
so much of my my own journey, how much how I've grappled with, kind of wrestled with certain things in my my life, celebrated, you know, uh, God's faithfulness, um, you know, wrestled through my you know struggles and questions and uh, and all of those things. So yeah, the the you know the songs and writing these songs have been such an important part uh, of, of my journey, just personally. Well, we are so glad that those uh, songs were shared with us, because many of us have walked through life carrying those songs with us and being encouraged by them. And we are so excited that you're going to be here Thursday, April 26th at East Hill Church. Again, if you haven't yet purchased your tickets, you can go to kpdq.com. There are a few left. <laughs> and uh, We're excited that uh, we have the opportunity to spend an evening with you uh, up close and personal. So Stephen Curtis Chat Chapman, uh, thank you for talking with us today, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. You're so welcome. Great talking to you, and can't wait to see you guys soon. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right. So thrilling to talk with Stephen Curtis Chapman. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show Well, I read an interesting story I wanted to bring to your attention. It involves Turkey's churches. They have been famous for historic schism that has existed there, and particularly in a Muslim nation, it was confusing not only for the church, but confusing for the Muslim world looking on in Turkey. Well, apparently they have finally agreed on doctrine. We're talking about Orthodox Christians, Catholics, Protestants. Uh, They have been engaged in an effort to present accurate information about Christianity in the Muslim-majority country. Well, a joint Commission of Turkey's major Christian denominations has published an historic book of concise Christian doctrine, receiving the unprecedented endorsement of all the nation's Orthodox, Catholic, Arminian, Syriac, and Protestant churches. Now, that in and of itself is a major feat. Well, according to Armenian Bishop um, uh, Masalian, a keynote speaker at the uh, formal book launch in Istanbul of the English edition in February, the most spectacular aspect of the book is, in fact, its first page of endorsements, which he declared akin to a miracle. Well, the book expresses the shared beliefs of the churches in Turkey. We approve in publication and recommend that it be widely read, the statement says. Uh, Undersigned are the ecclesiastical leaders of all mainstream branches of the Christian faith in Turkey. Uh, That includes the Orthodox uh, Patriarch, Armenian Archbishop, Syriac Metropolitan, Chairman of the Catholic Bishops, and the church leader chairing the Turkish Association of Protestant Churches. Now, this is quite a significant feat, but I'm reminded of uh, Jesus. Jesus' words about the unity in the church and that uh, the world would recognize that followers of Jesus by their love and their unity for churches that have ostracized each other for centuries. Um, the uh, back cover of the book explains each uh, have ostracized each other for centuries, leaving a legacy of deep divisions and resentment. Uh, to sign their name to such a work is no small step toward Christian unity, end quote. Now, I know there's probably some suspicion. Is this an ecumenical uh, movement in which you water down the gospel in such a way it's appealing to everybody, but it reflects uh, nothing found in Scripture? I'm not sure of that, but uh, it goes on to, to point out, uh, entitled simply Christianity Fundamental Teachings, the slim 95-page volume was first released in Turkish in 2015 by the Bible Society of Turkey. Its purpose is spelled out clearly in the preface. 
to help every Christian in Turkey understand their own faith doctrines held in common by all Christian churches. Well, Turkey was key to the history of the global Christian church throughout many centuries, and its significant cities, such as Ephesus, were visited by the Apostle Paul himself, born in Tarsus. And several New Testament books are named after its towns and regions. So this, again, is significant. Istanbul, until uh, 1453, known as Constantinople, became the center of Eastern Orthodox Christianity, home of the medieval world's largest church, uh, Hagia Sophia, now a mosque and national museum. It was also where the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches broke communion during the great schisms of the 11th century. Well, today, Turkey's tiny Christian communities add up to less than 100,000 citizens in overwhelmingly a Muslim Turkey among a population of 80 million. We owe the birth of this book to the Turkish state. Uh, said the uh, uh, the bishop back in 2002 complaints had reached the Ankara had reached Ankara rather that some of Turkey's school textbooks contained misinformation about non-Muslim religious beliefs in response government officials asked representatives of Turkey's churches to participate in a joint commission to prepare basic texts to explain Christian beliefs for the country's school books over the next year the incorrect texts were replaced with accurate information written by the Christians themselves now what a commission that was. First of all, to bring these church leaders together, something they would not have done on their own, commissioned by the government of a Muslim nation, forced them to come up with the basic tenets of the Christian faith. But as ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew observed in his address at the book's launch celebrations, the government launch project had brought the various church representatives closer to each other to discover and recognize the fundamental beliefs that unite us to realize that much more unites us than divides us. Now, I would imagine as you read the book of Revelation that the church will be pressured and forced into a greater degree of unity as, uh, as the day approaches, and that's a good thing. As long as we uh, maintain fidelity to the scriptures. Well, the article goes on. So the church has agreed to set up an 11 member joint commission, including representatives of all five Christian denominations who were determined to produce a concise but complete book outlining the basic common doctrines of Christianity upon which they could all agree. They were not merely theologians who had sound knowledge, explained uh, the bishop who authored the final draft of the text, but active shepherds, pastors, religious teachers and catechists. For a decade, they worked together to write and rewrite, critiquing and revising again and again until in 2015, all the church leaders had endorsed the final text for publication. In 12 concise chapters, the book explains fundamental Christian teachings ranging from the nature of God and the doctrine of salvation in Jesus Christ to the inspiration of the Bible, the activity of the Holy Spirit, and the role of the church. You cannot find another page like this in church history, the bishop stated, referring to the thorny problems of theological addictions, which had disrupted church unity down through the ages. Through this book, we declared to the whole world with a mighty voice that without hesitation, we see every church and believer who approves of the fundamental principles and doctrines of faith in this book as fellow heirs of salvation in Jesus Christ, considering them as our brothers and sisters, uh, he emphasized. Well, once the Turkish edition was printed, the uh, subcommission, including native English speakers, was set up to translate into meticulous but fluent English to make it available to the wider Christian world. Our common wish is that through the English translation, this book may be like a stone thrown into a lake, its waves reaching out to the most remote parts of Christendom, the bishop concluded, now available in hard copy through the Istanbul website of the Bible Society of Turkey. The English edition will also be released as an e-book. 
looking forward to uh, reading it with great hope that it is, in fact, a, an accurate reflection of the core tenets of the Christian faith. Well, taking a look at the remainder of this week here on the Georgine Rice Show, tomorrow we're going to talk with Craig Glass. His book is titled Noble Journey, The Quest for a Lasting Legacy. Well, the truth is all of us will leave a legacy and uh, some will be lasting for more nefarious purposes than we'd like to imagine. But this is how to leave a legacy that is worth um, leaving for the sake of those left behind. So we're looking forward to a conversation with Craig Glass. Again, Noble Journey is the title of his book. And then on Thursday, Brian C. Stiller will be our guest from Jerusalem to Timbuktu, a world tour of the spread of Christianity. And uh, that's going to be an interesting odyssey, uh, seeing how the disciples who were persecuted in Jerusalem and charged to uh, spread the gospel to the um, outermost parts of the world did in fact do that in places that those disciples had no idea, I would imagine, existed. Uh, Nonetheless, the gospel has reached throughout the world from Jerusalem to Timbuktu. So that will be my guest on uh, Thursday. And we're also going to talk with uh, another of the Christian school leaders uh, from our community in a reminder that we are still offering uh, tuition discounts from some of the finer Christian schools here in the Portland metro area. And you can find out more about tuition discounts at listenersavings.com. And I would encourage you to check that out. Uh, for some uh, some great deals. All right, uh, we're going to wrap things up. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.